0: These
1: technological trends are definitely positive. And the real goal was to make a scientific assessment of our observations, as scientifically as possible, because that's...
0: That said, by the way, I'm pretty optimistic, you know, I, I like the technology. I think it's, uh, at some point, it'll be a game changer, as much uh, just like any technology that has been taking a long time to mature, like nuclear fusion, which is a extreme case
1: this whole thing also applies to our computations. And I'm a little bit scared, but also excited about this. Completely new view of how we perform these computations.
2: I wonder if we underestimate the power of the HPC community and its influence on the market, and that perhaps we really could be more assertive in what our needs are, because that is in fact the future of computing in general.
3: Silicon photonics could be a great answer to a lot of these problems. To what degree are we likely to get to practical, functional, affordable silicon photonics, optical I.O. anytime soon? From Orion X in association with Inside HPC, this is the At HPC podcast. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Black as they discuss supercomputing technologies and the applications, markets, and policies that shape them. Thank you for being with us. Hey Shaheen, great to be with you again.
2: Excellent to be here and super excited about the session.
3: Yeah, I'm very excited about this one. We have with us Dr. Satoshi Matsuoka, longtime HPC luminary and director of the Riken Center for Computational Science in Japan, and Dr. Torsten Puffler. He is professor of computer science at ETH Zurich, which is the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology. And the two of them were part of a group of six HPC thinkers, technologists who this month put together a very provocative, thought-provoking paper called The 12 Myths and Legends of HPC. I wrote a, an article in Inside HPC based on this paper and we're really pleased to have both of them with us today to to talk about some of these myths, legends, but really the issues of technologies, future technologies, and their expected impact on HPC. So why don't we begin with kind of an overall question. I'll turn it over to Satoshi and to Torsten. Is there an overall theme to your Myths and Legends paper? Is it that these technologies have been overhyped or that expectations have somehow become unrealistic? What is the theme of the piece, would you say?
0: As you say, these 12 myths are subject matters uh, of course, you know, we admit they are of great discussions of great interest and uh, you know there were a lot of first time I must say these technological trends are definitely positive. Like, you know, the first admit the myth of quantum yeah definitely we're well, not anti quantum at all. In fact we're pro quantum in that it would be an important asset to solve some of the important problems where the traditional computing may not be able to attain. But on the other hand, these various technologies, as you say, have been sort of overhyped beyond their limits. And it's distorting the overall picture of how we should progress as a community, where the investments should be made, how we should be scientifically comparing these methods. And all these things we felt were being somewhat distorted, but this enormous onslaught of these new technologies and advances. So we thought we should step back and being sort of experts in the area actually collect the experts in the area including ourselves and we really think hard what are the topics that are in some cases oversold or in some cases there would be counterpoints or some things we really have to think of to advance the technology but have not been really thought of and then you know we make it a fun paper because then people will read it and will start discussions on these important topics.
1: Yeah, I would completely agree and and go further and say that somehow felt the responsibility that we had to manage the hype that was created along some of those in those areas, basically to, to avoid the disappointment and potential collapse of these extremely important fields that Satoshi just outlined. And so we have actually watched each other to that we give various talks. So I watched Satoshi giving talks about these things, and, and he watched me giving talks about these things. And at some point, we were just like, hey, we have to get together and, and write this down. This this would make sense. And we finally got it done over, over the Christmas holidays, essentially, last year. And the real goal was to make a scientific assessment of our observations, or as scientifically as possible. Because as you see in the paper, some are semi-religious discussions. So you cannot really have a scientific assessment, but you can at least Outline scientific pros and cons, and then have the community discuss and this is what we wanted to start a community discussion.
2: I think that's excellent, and I do believe the paper has been successful in achieving its objective of causing discussions. I thought it was written quite skillfully, such that it was enjoyable and provocative without really being too blunt of an instrument <laughs> and, uh, and of course, some of the topics that you bring are very important in a very visible and public way, like. It wasn't the case 20, 30 years ago. And that brings in attention to those topics by people who are far away from the expertise that is required to have an assessment. And then at the same time, we have learned how to monetize these new technologies as a society. And all the startups have an interest in obviously being optimistic. And that fine line between optimism and overhype. You know, the fine line between the enthusiasm that you need to make progress, but the realistic approach that you would have to be credible. That's a tension there. How would you see that?
0: Well, at least um, my reaction when somebody pointed out on Twitter, you know, there are a lot of startups that may be precisely hyping some of those points. And then my reaction was, well, you know, if this article is widespread read by the people who are investors or at least advisors who are making advices to these investors, then they will really have to answer some tough questions, right? Because now the salient discussion points with regards to these new technologies is brought at the open, will become even more argumentative with the community discussion going on. So this will certainly allow the people who are trying to make these decisions or trying to foster technology also be able to ask these uh, very hard questions regarding some of the limitations of
1: these technologies and evolutions of it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, these these questions are actually super important. I think if I would have to name the major contribution that we try to make is to help people define these questions, help all kinds of people define these questions, like investors, young students who who may be confused. And also the people developing the technology themselves and also the people who publish these weird, (laughs) sorry, these uh, (laughs) somewhat (laughs) exaggerated um, (laughs) statements that they could even reality check themselves a little bit and be realistic. So it's really about these questions that Satoshi mentioned that we try to define.
3: I thought another really valuable aspect throughout the article is that you give a very realistic analysis of the barriers that remain for these technologies. And so some of these technologies I've written about, and you know, I talk with the vendors, but of course, they're going to emphasize the upside, the optimistic side. They're not going to talk about The potential barriers more than they need to. So I think you all really highlighting that is a very valuable service for everyone involved. The other aspect I really liked was that, and it kind of relates to the hype idea, is not to get too caught up on any one particular technology as something of a panacea for HPC challenges. What you all really emphasize is this, to quote you, the intricate relationship between the application requirements and the system capabilities in terms of balance. And sort of starting with the workload, starting with the requirements and working backwards toward the system and its components from there. I thought that was a very valuable theme too.
2: So one question I have, what do you think is the most controversial, the most important question Let's start with the overall theme. Yes.
0: For example, when the Apollo went to the moon, some even 50 years ago, over 50 years ago, the engineering was done such that we knew how much energy would take given certain, certain payloads and then, you know, all the engineering was done to basically realize all these parameters which are intricately intertwined. And of course, there's a lot of engineering done to mitigate some dangers and risks. And, and so it was a very comprehensive engineering effort involving you know, tens of thousands of people. So this is so very, very careful engineering in order to be able, and there are a lot of innovations granted, but at the end of the day, we rejected and you know, there wasn't really hyping involved because if there were just hype, would not have gone to the moon. So, you know, HPC, similar with HPC, I mean, what, what do we do HPC for? Well, one is the advanced IT at but other is to solve real-world real important problems, because otherwise we would, not, we would not exist. The importance of HPC and the society you know, growing. So sometimes we have, we're responsible in order to make progressions. We should always be cognizant of the objectives. And once we are out there to solve these problems, we should really be honest about what are the pros, what are the cons, what are you know, the technologies that you combined to come up with a solution. So, you know, we need to live in both worlds. On one hand, we need to be innovative. On the other hand, we need to do careful engineering assessment to each check We really need to think about what are we good for.
2: The role of HPC, in my view, and of course, you know, I am biased like many of us are. But while I hear that HPC is not a very large market and it's not in a position to be in the driver's seat of the IT technology as a whole, it nevertheless, traditionally and in the future, to me, is the only part that is going to be growing non-linearly and more than with GDP or more than with population growth. And as a result, I think that my observation is that every company, every organization that starts out with IT eventually ends up with HPC. Look at the cloud guys, right? They had no interest in HPC for a good long while, and now increasingly, The only part of the application that is growing exponentially and is using like thousands of CPUs at the same time is going to be HPC. So I wonder if we underestimate the power of the HPC community and its influence on the market. And that perhaps we really could be more assertive in what our needs are, because that is in fact the future of computing in general. What do you think about that?
1: I would say that you're probably absolutely right. Many people underestimate HPC's innovative potential. I usually, in my lecture, I call HPC the formula one of computing. So we actually are a very risk-taking community in order to achieve the highest computation that people do anywhere on the planet. So we invent all kinds of new things. Uh, After all, the deep learning revolution was basically driven by a success coming out of HPC. And you can even hear the Turing Award winners, right, Geoffrey Hinton, say these things publicly. So he called it the advance of compute, but at the end, GPUs were mainly driven by the HPC market, the general purpose GPUs. And we keep driving this. I mean, vectors come out of HPC originally, now are in every single laptop. Same with GPU computation. Tensor calls will be universal, even though we may be disagreeing on this call. And so we are driving the future in, in many regards because performance, the performance of the largest systems today is going to drive the normal system tomorrow and is going to drive my watch in five years, or maybe 10 years.
3: Maybe 30. Yeah.
1: Well, my watch is quite fast. I mean, I
3: have four cores.
1: So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes, yes. Yeah, you're smart.
3: Yeah, these are great points. And now we're one thing I've chatted about with Satoshi is I think increasingly with more frequency. We're going to see the things that are coming out of HPC and big AI, if we combine those two, really breaking out into public discussion, public notice, major news. And the most recent example is chat GPT, but that really comes out of HPC AI. But by the same token, I'm amazed by how many friends of mine who are generally well-informed people, they're t- you know relatively tech savvy, have never heard of NVIDIA. I've never heard of TSMC. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. For us inside of the HPC community, it's hard to have that perspective on where do we stand in the general awareness, general knowledge, if you will, of technology. But what if we got into now, I know, Gene, you looked at the 12 myths and kind of categorized them a little bit, broke them into groups.
2: Yeah, let me paint the picture that I could walk away with. And as I was saying in our pre-call, this may or may not be approved by you guys, but I saw a few topics that were sort of new technologies that are still evolving in various stages of proving themselves and understanding where they work and where they don't and how. And that's quantum computing, AI, and to some extent, cloud computing, and the role that it might or might not play in HPC. The second one was just HPC systems and the different aspects of a system, from specialization and composability to accelerators, memory per core, mixed precision, although there's obviously overlap. The next one was really the future of HPC, and that's singularly the Zeta scale, which I think is a useful thought process, but perhaps not much more. And then the next one is applications. How do we optimize applications? What are the development environment? And that alludes to application performance and Fortran and some of the very good questions that you raise after each myth. So we could take that path and see where we want to take this next.
0: No, I think for the first one, as you had described earlier, there's a fine line between sort of a, you know, innovative new topic, which are, of course, valuable and that's why the research and development are going on versus uh, overclaiming this as hype and so it's a panacea for everything but that tends to happen of course we want the technology whatever being developed to be widely applicable as possible i mean there's always a desire for any like quantum ai there should be research to try to see if it's applicable to certain problem domains that it had not been applied to For example, there are a lot of research going on right now to see if some of the first principle PD solvers can be sort of augmented by deep learning surrogates. So yeah, I mean, that kind of research is certainly positive. Some of the research being done are really excellent in that regard, trying to mix, for example, AI, trying to mix surrogates and precise PD calculations. That has led to some, you know, some uh, big innovations. But that said, there's a tendency that without proper assessment and limitations that should be made, and in many cases, of course, people try to make these clear. There are good authors, good researchers. Uh, they try to expose in a real scientific paper. They try to expose the you know the limitations, the errors, and those things because that's what you ought to do when you're a scientist. Oftentimes, this gets sort of for some reason the negatives disappear, and then the whole hype about oh, like quantum will replace. So all the supercomputers that we know, oh, so oftentimes I'm responsible for you know, one of the biggest supercomputers in the world. And we continue our trajectory towards trying to design the next one. But, you know, I will often get the question from the press saying, well, you know, you're working on supercomputers and you achieve this and this, but for Goku, that's great. But the quantum computers coming, it's going to subsume everything. And why are do you even bother working on traditional supercomputers when quantum you know, will take over? I mean, directly from you know, people like it, from the press. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, no, <laughs> sorry. I'm no, not trying to. Yeah, well, I would agree. never ask you that, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, but then you wonder, you, you don't blame the press people themselves because they must have gotten this misconception from somewhere. And we try to kind of poke into the sources of how this conception. Kind of came about and the thoughts what what were the process what were the you know low of information that actually led to this and how can we prevent that and the only way not the only way but a good way we thought was really to expose the fact that these misconceptions are being widespread in some cases and the two things is to really think about not only to think about how not just to complain that these are misconceptions really get to the the, the bottom of how we can solve these misconceptions and the only way we can think of of solving these misconceptions is really think really propagate the idea that not only to propagate the idea that these misconceptions any new technology has to have a really hard evaluation phase to yeah. to see if what is it credible for and what it's not good for and then you know make a very deep scientific assessment of it. And we want to make that really a part of engineering, as I said, as the way we went to the moon, we're very honest. We didn't even need technology, we should step back and be very honest about it. We should make that very much a part of our discipline.
3: Well, let's take the case of quantum. What would you say, I guess the point about hype and high expectations that are driven too high is that when expectations aren't met, then Interest is lost, investment can go away, funding, and, and then you can move into, and we saw this over the years with AI, these AI winters where people just sort of gave up on the idea. Now, of course, it's here to stay. I think everybody agrees with that. But that could happen with quantum. I mean, my own feeling is there's so much work being done globally on quantum. I, I'd be surprised if we go into a quantum winter, but we could go into a period of abeyance where people are just saying this stuff isn't coming along fast enough because their expectations were were too high. What would you say are the biggest barriers, biggest challenges in quantum right now on the technical level?
1: I think quantum really needs some guidance on the algorithmic side. You mentioned that we may be disappointed because it comes too slow. And I would actually go even in a more extreme direction. We may also be disappointed if it comes too fast. Mm. Let's assume a quantum computer actually shows up tomorrow. And by that, I mean a reasonable quantum computer, so, so not... One that runs at at multiple gigahertz, but one that runs at multiple megahertz uh, because of quantum error correction and and all the details that we could talk long about. But let me just skip those. And that computer showing up tomorrow, which would now be a likely computer, would actually have a challenge because it would not outperform HPC systems on most of the quantum algorithms that we know today because for decades researchers algorithmic researchers have only looked at asymptotic speed up so they were super happy to get quadratic speed up for something but if you run at a megahertz a quadratic speed up will not get you very far compared to a supercomputer where thousands of processors are running at gigahertz so that's one problem and we actually Specifically, together with Microsoft and Matthias Toyo, there, uh, we, have, we have a paper that's going to come out and does very detailed analysis of a candidate quantum computer that it, we believe is very likely, and that's coming out in, in communications of the ACM. And that was kind of the inspiration for that first point, that first myth. And what we really wanted to achieve is, is, one for one, navigate or moderate that hype, but as a more important goal is to tell the community that there is a huge opportunity to invest into new quantum algorithms for problems that are not just Grover's so-called database search, even though that is the (laughs) worst name you can imagine, because you can't search a database with a quantum computer faster than with a normal computer, and there are so many reasons.
2: I would say you cannot search it at all.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can, but it's going to be super slow. I mean, after all, your quantum computer can do anything that a normal computer does, right? But mega- I think a
2: spreadsheet, maybe, a database, no. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
1: if you can read it, right? So yeah, that's the argument on the quantum. So really, it's an opportunity that we need to help policymakers also to to help them make decisions where to invest. So one challenge here is that these
2: technologies are becoming so important and so mm-hmm. faithful for for politicians and countries and organizations that they feel like they cannot afford not to have a seat at the table. They cannot afford not to invest almost regardless of if the likelihood of success is more than 0 They're in because if they miss out it will be disastrous. And I think that's one reason why money continues to get poured into this area, which actually is a very positive thing, because it will accelerate development. But also, it adds to the hype. And it sort of positions you closer to the quantum winter that we averted last year, but we are definitely not immune to. That's a really hard problem to solve, is that when it seems almost like that the investment model has shifted for some of these technologies.
0: Certainly, we should invest in technologies that are, when the, if they pan out, become very important, even if they're low risk. Then you know, there should be lots of you know, a thousand flowers bloom. That's what the basic basic research should be about. Because you know, or any like venture startups, you know, venture startups have very low rate of success, and we accept that. Basic research has very low chance of success, and we accept that as an investment and maybe you know one in a hundred one in a thousand they are successful and the outcome may be game changing so if the expectation of the investments are you know set in the correct way and then there's a the evaluation process by which all these new ideas are evaluated like just like porson said there's been lots of proposals quantum computers and also quantum algorithms and so forth there are a lot of uh, studies done being done at uh, every aspect but uh, at the end there hasn't been as much research on predicting how many uh, we can solve these types of problems assuming that we have this number of qubits. And by the way, error-corrected qubits. Hmm. And also at running at certain frequency. And then at this point, there this will be a proper quantum supremacy for these important props and hmm. the problems in quantum chemistry. So Forsen's group is one of the, there are several groups doing that. And the Torsen group is one of, you know, that Microsoft, and he is uh, one of the few groups in the world that's actually really serious about this and uh, uh, publishing papers about this. Again, these kinds of assessments, were, as scientists, were supposed to make. But oftentimes, we just present certain ideas. Oh, it's good for this, and this is good for that. As such, this must be, this must be good for everything else in the world. So those are types of, even scientists tend to, Write these types, of, uh, make these types of claims in their papers, or not at least not do proper assessment, and this really leads to the hype. Uh, so again, I'm not blaming any particular individuals or press or politicians and so forth. It's the whole framework mm. of not being able to do the proper assessment and, and you have to communicate these assessments properly to the people who are making investments. Uh, sure, you know they may. It's not. I'm not blaming them for making assessments into risky things, but if they make investments. They should be told, right? Whether it's good or not, proper technological way, mm-hmm. and the lack of that is actually creating all
2: these hypes. Do you feel it is possible to have a standard for such assessments that is not going to itself be criticized by those with an agenda or with, with a misconception? Because that's the other problem in these days that we live in: is that no truth is beyond challenge.
0: Well, that's the whole point. What well, HPC had been very good at. Hmm. HPC is a very competitive community. What other communities have standardized benchmarks that would compare all the machines in the world, like top 500 HPCG Mm. in IT? Not many, right? Yeah. So in HPC, we're supposed to be good at that and making these a candid assessments of the technologies. So the concern was, despite our excellence, there are all these hypes coming up that are starting to, in some sense, starting to tarnish some of our reputations of Mm. being a Mm. community with ability to do candid assessments of our ability.
2: That's a really important insight and I'm really glad that we you know managed to get to a point where you know I, I could hear it from you. Thank you.
3: Now Shaheen, is there besides quantum, what would be another one of these issues that's in that grouping?
2: All right, well let's do AI because AI is another topic that is simultaneously, I think like quantum, you know overhyped and underestimated simultaneously. <laughs> and it is hard to understand what actually works when and it's having such ripple impact on HPC. As you mentioned, Torsten, and I would totally be in that camp, I believe HPC enabled AI and took it out of its AI winter that it was in for a few decades. But now we are where we are, and it is now a tool for HPC as well as being enabled by HPC. How do you guys see it evolving?
1: And it's actually getting more interesting because you could argue that HPC enabled AI, but it may eat its children. Um, (laughs) The the Darwinian mistake... (laughs) (laughs) Because what's what's likely going to happen is is that AI is already a bigger market than HPC, I would say, and it will drive the development of future architectures in a way that HPC has to follow, for example, this low precision business. Right. So we could argue that in a couple of years, we will have only negligible FP64 performance on our chips. And that's going to be a problem for many.
2: Well, already the Barron chip that was announced does not have 64-bit.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, you can always emulate it with a couple of FP32 instructions, but, but that's what I mean by non-negligible performance.
2: Well, isn't that how we got into 64-bit to begin with? Is because the simulation was too slow and we couldn't get a way to get better accuracy, so why exactly. not just do it in hardware?
1: Exactly, but at the time, we didn't have these AI tools that may actually solve parts of the simulation business. And hmm. so we could hope that we could learn better representations for PDEs, as Satoshi mentioned, um, the, in a data-driven way that can deal with lower precision, but we don't know whether that works yet, or at least I don't know. And so that is something super exciting to be explored, and that could change the way we do HPC. That, that has a huge potential in my view.
2: Yeah. Satoshi, what
0: is your view on this? Well, firstly, I don't think AI and HPC, well, HPC in terms of uh, you know first principle solvers like PDE. Or antagonists at all i mean there are just different ways of solving problems so certainly solving PDEs by first principles is more of a deductive type of you know, traditionally deductive type of science approach whereas ai is inductive you know you, you learn and both have its advantage disadvantage and sometimes in many cases in fact if you combine them they become more powerful so there's a work for example at the earthquake institute at university of tokyo flipped by Professor Ichimura and his group, and that uh, they were able to achieve, on Fugaku, they a- achieved 1,000 times speed up over k, which would be equivalent to something like a 10 exascale scale compute that they had wished they would be able to do in order to do a proper assessment of the earthquake. Now, of course, Fugaku is not 10 exascale, scale. You know, it's like, it's only half exaflop on LIMPAC. So how mm-hmm. did they achieve this uh, 10-axis flop worth of computing? Well, this is by combining The two approaches, in a very clever way, and I I won't go into details, and if you're interested, you can read our paper. But they have a very clever way of combining the inductive methods, uh, the AI-based methods, and PDE-based methods, in a way such that you retain the precision as if it had had been computed with a fully PDE approach, but much faster, part of it being much faster, by acceleration uh, by this AI method. So the combination of both approaches will, certainly there's a huge opportunity for new types of approaches and algorithms to advance or compute. And I think we're only, only starting to scratch the surface. Well, that said, the downside is to say, well, you know, because of the import, commercial importance of AI, the HPC will be, there'll be degenerative effect on HPC. Mm. Uh, with, the, with the growth of AI, the overall speed up the hardware acceleration is ever increasing. Now there you know, there are some some salient points where precisions, in particular, numerical representation, in particular, which part of which may not suit the traditional HPC algorithm. Uh, you know there are some simple solutions like you know like, like Thorson said you can combine uh, multiple 32 bits to perform 64 bits, etc. And there are, again, there are very good uh, work in the area to not lose performance while you're doing that. But, you know, that's sort of a solving stuff at the low level. I think rather we should, the uh, HPC community should really think about this AI plus these new hardware, the acceleration achieved by these new hardware, which which will actually accelerate both in many cases as a new weaponry to go beyond the current, uh, you know, the exascale scale mm-hmm. and maybe be able to achieve... Uh, effective data scale performance without really going to the uh, data scale
2: impact. One thing about mixed precision that is a question is that as we look at future chips that are tiles and chiplets and you can envision that you look at a menu of IP and you can say, I want three of these and two of those and one of these, go lay it out on a substrate for me and give me my own custom chip that is going to cost the same as essentially the volume requirement becomes less of an issue, could we see a future where you actually can have the cake and eat it too? And you say, you know what, I do need some 64-bit, but not a lot. And maybe for HPC, for this particular system, we can have a configuration that provides that, but we have a more ideal balance of what capabilities we need on a chip. If that sort of flexibility comes forward, then maybe we can have the cake can eat it too how do you see that
0: i would go even beyond that i will go mm. further because i uh, what you know one of our papers and we've written a couple of
2: years two or three years
0: ago with a couple of papers and this these papers also became motivation writing this particular paper we're talking about the, the myth paper is the fact that there haven't been too well studied assessments of the true need of this of things like precision certainly Having worked on at uh, the very theoretical aspects mm. of precision, and certainly people may have said, "Well, you know, I just use 64 bits in my program, and I don't want to, you know, rewrite it to send, saying like the you C know, program, saying let's say double to float, because I don't know the consequences." Mm. Well, no, no, not not that type of thing. But really, to assess the true need of these high precision, in what type of application, and what's the application makes, and what what are the future technological advances that would allow Basically, you know, make these uh, reliance on fp 64 be rather negligible. So despite the rigor of our discipline, uh, we found that, the, you know, these types of assessment that the need for, you know, what's the true need for 64 bits? Do you really need 64 bits? I mean, is it really true? I mean, you may need it like in a PD solver. It's all memory bound. So you may need 64 bits, but not very often. And since you don't need it often, you can even emulate it. It's not, it's going to be next to performance implication mm-hmm. on your program. So why do you bother having that in the hardware in the first place? That's a very simple assessment. So those types of rigorous assessment of the true needs of respective parts of the hardware, it turns out there is not disciplined way of having done uh, having done the comprehensive studies of
2: covering all those.
0: Yeah. So that's something we really should do before we go saying, you know, mixed precision
2: is important or not. I see. Kirsten you were about to say.
1: Yeah, I mean this this is an, a, a super interesting discussion. I think I have an anecdote here <laughs> <laughs> that Satoshi was mentioning. So when I, when I arrived in Switzerland, everybody was running the, the local weather simulation in FP64. And I was always wondering, why are we doing this? Like, we are throwing a factor of two on the floor, and we don't really know. But this was just pure conservatism. And, and it took three years of lobbying and, and various <laughs> implementation demos before now the production weather forecast in switzerland is running at 32 bits and Meteor schweiz and, and oliver fuhrer was mainly involved there and so they actually Agreed. And now the question is, can you go further down? And mm. we, we tried to show that analytically, of course, we are scientists, right? That's what we have to do. Like Satoshi mentioned, we found that actually 32 bits in the worst case is actually required if you want to run about a one kilometer resolution model. So that's a problem. However, that's the worst case. So do we care about the worst case? Well, generally in deep learning, we don't. We know in deep learning that the dynamic range of, of FP 16 at least, is actually required to faithfully represent all the activations and weights in a model. However, in the average case, we can quantize things down into a couple of bits, even 2.53 bits like we just showed in the GPTQ paper for large generative models. So now the question is, what do we do? We, We can do worst case analysis. But that doesn't tell us much. And then we typically revert. And that's what the weather people did. They revert to experiments. Like they just show, oh, for our input, for what we usually see, 32 bits are enough. That's good. Mm. And so now, now we, we have a, a problem, right? So the scientific approach has to give way to some kind of empirical evidence that we keep accumulating. Ah, this is and, and, that is, and that is where deep learning is coming in, right? In deep learning, it's all about the expectation. Like there is no worst case proof in deep learning. We all know these models can be arbitrarily bad. And now this whole thing also applies to our computations. And I'm a little bit scared, but also excited about this completely new view of how we perform these computations.
2: So you're saying that we people like me have been naively going about for the past decades thinking that there was some proper error propagation analysis done where we kind of prove that we need a minimum of 53 bits and therefore we have to use 64. That's not the case you're saying.
1: Exactly. And, and what the, the other observation I made is actually people were very hesitant to accept really convincing the, the climate folks was, was very painful because they made exactly the arguments you mentioned. But then the machine learning revolution just happened and they were watching other computations going lower and lower and lower just empirically. And then suddenly they thought, hey, maybe we should try that as well. And they did. And it, it worked. <laughs> you know, that right.
2: Worked. Well, the other thread in your comment is that, you know, I, I asked Rick Stevens this, is that are we going from an era where we were used to precision to an era where we better get used to probabilities? Yes. Because with you know, quantum yes. and AI, they're all sort of, well, it's close enough by ninety-nine percent or ninety-eight percent. Is that another thing that's happening?
1: Absolutely. And there's one yeah. problem actually. The Turing Award winner John Hopcroft was pointing this out in a keynote at the a Korean AI summit where I was in December. And it was very impressive because he said we are lacking the education in statistics. Yeah. So, most humans have a really bad intuition when it comes to statistics, including myself. And he was arguing for completely replacing our education to make statistics a basic, basic like algebra. <laughs> yes. You learn. <laughs> which, is, which is not the case today. So, I completely agree with you. We, we, we <laughs> go into a probabilistic view of the world, but we are not ready for it. <laughs> no, we're so.
2: not ready for it. Yeah. Also, I'm delighted to hear John Hopcroft's name because he was my professor and he was very
3: difficult. Uh. <laughs> <But> <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you're not so delighted, actually.
2: Oh, no, no. I am super delighted. I was, I felt honored <laughs> to be in his class.
3: <laughs> uh, can I move on to your disaggregated myth, which the central focus was on silicon photonics. My general sense is that traditional copper-based IO is kind of a lagging component within HPC, that it's really becoming overburdened. Data movement bottlenecks are creating tremendous problems across system architectures and that silicon photonics could be a great answer to a lot of these problems. But your analysis of what of the barriers that remain the silicon photonics, if you could put that into context, I mean, to what degree are we likely to get to practical, functional, affordable Silicon photonics optical I/O anytime soon. Well, there's a
0: uh, photonics is all has always been technology that we enable five years from now. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. that. Said, by the way, I'm pretty optimistic. You know, I, I like the technology. I think it's you know, at some point it'll be a game changer as much uh, just like any technology that had been taking a long time to mature, like you know, nuclear fusion, which is an extreme case. But you're right in saying that uh, now what will happen is the silicon our ability to manufacture silicon in a way such that we will be exploiting three D, we'll be exploiting various types of uh, new types of uh, transistor structures and, and all that stuff. You now, will certainly will amplify and grow the ability to move data within a chip or you know, maybe adjacent and adjacent chiplets and so forth by significant amount. And in fact, that's necessary because that's where we expect the performance gains to be attained in many cases, because uh, I think Forrest also wrote a paper like the world is going sparse. Even in deep learning, any sparse yes. structures you need that data movement. Right? So, and uh, totally agree about that. Okay, so that's uh, it's all good within a chip, but then once you go outside, the discrepancy, this immense ability to move the data in proximity in silicon or just you know, some or some, any sort of bonding between silicons versus something that's geometrically part, geographically part, part, you know, even a meter will be enormous, will be so, there'll be such orders of magnitude difference between those. that That's at a point there will be a sort of a transition where there's a, there will be a mandate uh, to move to silicon photonics rather than, you know, people saying, you know, people, this is a cool technology. Mm -hmm. The question then is, when? when is that? Have we made the proper technological assessment to say, okay, when we get to this bandwidth in the system and we run these application portfolio, we go to this kind of structure in our architecture, we have these types of bandwidth requirements in our algorithms, at which point then we will need to move to silicon photonics, not by the rule of thumb. And as far as I know, we have not quite made that proper assessment. And that's why... Silicon Photonics, to me, seems technology
1: so close, but yes, so far. Yeah, and going one up from the Silicon Photonics to the disaggregation, actually, back to the questions that we tried to help the community ask. Here, in this case, the question should be all about the three Ls, latency, latency, and latency. Yeah. <laughs> can you actually, in a disaggregated system, can you deal with the latency? Because I agree, Silicon Photonics is, this is great. It'll probably come. It'll probably get us an extreme amount of very cheap bandwidth, but there is always the speed of light. And so and the speed of light is a problem. I, pe- people are inventing <laughs> hollow core fibers just to get closer to the speed of light, but you cannot beat it. And so that is one of the major questions you need to ask there. And the answer is going to be painful.
0: Oh, yeah, I totally agree about that. And that kind of alludes to the other section where we try to categorize the applications in terms of what are the principal component of the algorithm. That it, that's the speed that the execution performance is bound by. Is it the compute? Is it the bandwidth? Is it the latency? And, and of course, it's not as simple as that, actually. When you do try to do real performance models, you know, these actually do combine at various levels. So when we make these assessments about the requirements, we really should be honest, again, be very honestly scientific about these things. In order to say, well, here's the latency target we cannot overcome, even with the most cleverest of software and things. And then as such, here's an asymptotic limit as to how much we can you know, provide speed up to these algorithms, uh, as long as we stick with one algorithm. And then, you know, here's the limitation, and then is your silicon photonics worth it? Or we have to make some algorithmic innovations in order to avert these. For example, if the latency a problem, the other alternative way is to change your algorithm so that you'll be less latency now. So you have to think about these things in a very holistic way.
3: Excellent. I did want to get to Zeta scale, and I think your prediction was 2036 or 38, extrapolating on how the previous milestones have taken to achieve. So that's a pretty interesting finding. But uh, in any case, we'll just thank both of you, Satoshi and Torsten, for joining us today. Fascinating discussion. We encourage everybody to... Check out this paper. If you look up my article on Inside HPC about the 12 Myths of HPC, you'll see links to the scholarly site where the paper exists. So, thanks very much.
2: Yeah, what a pleasure. Thank you very much, both of you. And I really look forward to additional discussions when we can get on your calendar. Thank you. Catch us in hallways, and, uh, and we'll be very happy to chat. Thank you. Exactly. I look forward to it. Thank you.
3: That's it for this episode of the At HPC podcast. Every episode is featured on insidehpc.com and posted on orionx.net. Use the comments section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics of discussion. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The At HPC Podcast is a production of OrionX in association with Inside HPC. Thank you for listening.